This podcast is from our Tabar Gathering 2019. For more information on Tabar, please go to our website, tabar-network.com. Great. Just before um, I asked the guys to come and um, um, do some interviews, ask some questions um, to them, I just want to take 10 or 15 minutes to set the scene for tonight, because um, I think this might just help us as we try to discern the Lord. Um, I suppose what we're proposing, which seems like a pretty bold claim, is that something new is about to happen, but maybe even more than that, maybe something new has already begun. There's still so much that we long to see. There's still so much that we need to see. Could we say that we are living in revival days or awakening days? In many ways, we'd have to say no to that. Could we, could we say that something has begun, though? I'm going to propose tonight that possibly yes. In fact, I'm going to be a little bit more bold and say yes. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to also say, back that up with the Bible saying, do not despise the day of small things. Yeah. Our job, however, is if something new is happening, is to perceive it. Yeah. Uh, the scripture, can you put my PowerPoints on there, guys? The scripture um, that I read earlier this morning in Isaiah chapter 43, I'll read it to you just as a Guys, get it set up. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Here's the key words next. Do you not perceive perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. And so hopefully tonight as we chat some to the guys, we're going to like... Um, hear something of what we feel the Lord is saying to us. Before we do that, let me just try and give you a little bit of a grid, a little bit of a framework for awakenings. And the one I want to use is um, is the great awakening of the 17th to 18th century. Because it is the one that I think for the long term um, sustained and saw not just a flash flooding of the presence of God, which is unbelievable and an outpouring in that sense, but it was sustained and stewarded in the massive kind of reform for nations that uh, was passed down over a number of generations. Um, and so we've been using this a little bit in 24-7. Some of you might have heard Pete Gregg do this before, um, which is where I've been inspired by it from. But I've tried to contextualize it a little bit to Ireland. I'm just going to race through this, but I think it's helpful. But the, the, great, the great awakening of the 18th and 19th centuries were the most incredible defining moments in the history of the world, some of the most defining moments. Its impact and shape was incalculable. And so let, let me try and show you how that happened and then try and mirror it on to where we're at. Okay? So have we got that, guys? It's on the Dropbox. Okay. Well, they're getting it. Listen, listen to this. On the 13th of August, okay, this was all preceded. <laughs> it's the Tabar Conference. Very got it. Brilliant. It's a live, it's a live show, people. <laughs> that, was, that worked, but that was really subtle. Thanks. <laughs> uh, 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 <laughs> hmm. Hopefully we'll get there. Hey, let me see. Is this the right one now? Yeah, here we go. Yeah, praise the Lord, right? So what, I, what I'm going to say is the Great Awakening of the 18th and 19th century was preceded by an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that happened in a little um, obscure place in Hernot, which it was renamed, funny enough, as Maggie talked about this morning, just in a little obscure village. I actually can't remember what its original name was, outside Dresden. But it was renamed um, the Lord's Watch, which is what Hernot means in German. Okay? And so that's what that place has become known. And the Moravians were a bunch of peasants who Count Zinderdorf um, pretty much discipled, loved, took in, and um, 
too, too long of a backstory to go into, but, but amazing within itself. He, he led them around kind of communion. They started to pray. A hunger was ignited in their hearts, and they started to seek the Lord with fervency and passion. And on 17, in 1727, on the 13th of August, the Holy Spirit fell upon the room, and they started to pray. And they prayed night and day for 100 years, right? They built it around Leviticus chapter 6. The sacred fire was never permitted to go out. 24 men, 24 women, they started praying night and day, and on and on it went. And then, funny enough, when people pray, in uh, 17, so from 17, so that was 1727, so I'm going to propose it from 1730 to around 1760, there was a time of renewal within the church. In 1738, Wesley was converted. But what we see is only 5 to 10% were attending church at that time. Almost 50 parishes had no incumbents. There was only five Christian MPs, so a lack of kind of Christian influence in the public sphere. But in the midst of that, I'm going to argue because of the prayer that was going on beforehand starting to sweep around Europe, beginnings of renewal started. The church started to be mobilized. More flexible models, new wineskins started to come. Class meetings started, the beginnings of the small group movement as Wesley started to go around on his horse and just getting people discipling one another in the classrooms. Hotspots began to emerge where God was doing things in particular locations. 30 years of renewal, Wesley's heart was strangely warmed. You remember we spoke about this morning at the beginning of every movement is white hot love for Jesus, Yeah. Wesley's heart was strangely warmed in his own words. Something begun. Something had been initiated. Renewal, signs of renewal were starting. But from 1760 then to 1790, in order to keep that going, these were what we could describe as the years of hard work or 30 years of reform where what we see is the rolling up of the slaves came, so the, fa- the renewal kept happening. But in the midst of the renewal, there was new forms that started to take place. For those of you who have been listening to Mark Sayers, he, he describes the Great Awakening as both an awakening of fire and of form. We could say of new wine and new wineskins. Right? There was both this flash flooding of the presence of God that came in remarkable ways that just... Uh, the Holy Spirit encountered the people in profound ways, but then it was stewarded into all sorts of church planting and social reform in order to reach the poor and the broken and the least. These were years not just for standing on a stage preaching, although they did do that too, but they started to dig some ditches. They started to build some irrigation channels. So as the Holy Spirit continued to pour himself out, that the wine could get to those who needed it the most, the broken and the poor, and the least. And the personal prayers of people that prayed for the church started to overflow into the public space. And so reform started to happen. William Wilberforce was converted in 1785. Social reform started. There was a boldness for justice and for social holiness around the world. The class meetings that I talked about gathered weight. All of a sudden, there was now Wesley's followers, 72,000 Methodists. The movement, that, that is genuine movement. There's 500 of us here, and we think we're st- 72,000 around the UK began tapping into the new thing that the Holy Spirit was doing, the beginnings of the Clapham sect and all the incredible social reforms they brought. We read about the Mission Society being birthed, anti-slavery societies, prison reform groups, relief agencies, numerous mission societies got formed, the Religious Tract Society was, was organized, the British Farm Bible School was established, hospitals and schools multiplied, and uh, the church began to grow. Interestingly, though, and here's the cost of what this could mean. Interestingly, though, in 1790, Wesley dies. Um, but what, I, and what I'm going to propose is, in some ways, the movement was just getting going. And so the challenge to us is, what would it be like to give our lives to something? But the real results are going to come after we die. That our kids are going to. Our kids are going to receive it. People in our schools and prisons, the next generation are going to experience something that we maybe have not. 
Because from 1790 to 1820, this is when we see the real results. The evangelical population in the UK swelled to 55%. That's a tipping point if ever there was one. One million Methodists now at a growth rate of 4.5% per year. Some of us would love that growth, wouldn't we? 1793, William Carey sails to India. 1805, George Muller was born, who was accused. George Muller, by the way, just for a little, went on to care for 10,024 orphans, started 117 schools, educated 120,000 kids, and raised 90 million pounds along the way in the 1700s. And he was accused, listen to this, this is George Muller was accused of raising the poor above their natural state. That was the accusation. He raised the poor above their natural state. And I look around the room here. I see what some of you are doing in education. I see what some of you are doing in homework clubs. Yeah? This is the hard work. This is when we leave the building and we do the hard work so that the results can come. We could go on. The results went on beyond this. Florence Nightingale, Lord Shaftesbury, Hudson Taylor. Slavery was eventually abolished in 1833. Listen, look at the Sunday school movement. In 1780, there was 100 children in the UK in Sunday school. 1870, less than 100 years later, 70% of the working class children in the UK were in Sunday school. If you want to change a nation, if you want to change a nation and get a hold of the kids and teach them the God story and the message of Jesus, and you could go on. William Booth was converted in 1844. The great founder of the Salvation Army. And then we come into our own revival that we witnessed here. Amazing over the guts of 100 years. What if we were to think like that? What if we were to really start getting strategic about how we're going to live our lives and how we're going to form our churches and reform our churches beyond just our cool snappy vision that we're going to give next year <laughs> to get us through the next six months what if what if we started to think like this um and and so what i want to say and i'm going to ask the guys to come and speak into this for us <laughs> no pressure um is fast forward to the day remember that this awakening was preceded by a prayer movement. So we get to be part of 24-7 prayer here. We've been praying for 20 years nonstop. IHOP, International House of Prayer, started praying in the same month as 24-7 did over almost 20 years ago. Night and day prayer. There is a, there is a wave of prayer sweeping the globe like we've never known in history. There are more people praying today around the world than there ever has been. I look around and, and see people like Harry and Margaret and Robin Clark and from Transformations and Renewals, people who have prayed for this nation for more than 20 years. They're here tonight. So could the awakening have begun? Could the, could, could the seeds for awakening have started? And, and for those of us and for those of you who are even maybe slightly older than me or a bit older than me who lived through the charismatic renewal, have we saw those thirty have we saw those years of renewal? I think we need to see more. I think we need to see much more renewal. But has something started? Has is something being renewed? And 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 and, and when the charismatic renewal did come, did enough of it come? And do we long to see more of it come? And are we starting to see some of that renewal resulting in some reform? When we see alpha courses, when we see what's going on in prisons, clothes banks, food banks, all sorts of education programs, individuals standing up for integrity and health and business and education to reform some structures, to do the hard work when nobody else is looking, to dig those irrigation channels so that as we all in a meeting like this cry, Holy Spirit, come, we'll not just have a newly, a really good meeting, but that that water, that rain that falls, will flow into the places that need it the most to bring health and to rewire the very fabric of society. That's what we're living for 
And that's what we're longing for. And it's nights like these that we come together where we're all digging different stuff. But there's sometimes the farmer has to lift his lift his face to heaven, doesn't he? And he has to say, right, God, send the rain. Yeah? And that's what we're going to do later on. But before we do that, I want to just tease this out and play this out and fill this out and riff around this for another kind of 20 minutes, half an hour by just interviewing the guys and then we're going to do some worship. Is that all right? And so here, here are some people that um, are, do, are trying to do the stuff in different ways and represent us and you in many different ways. I just think that all of them will speak into this. I'm just going to ask David and Peter and Johnny to come. Why don't you give them a round of applause as they come and sit up here on these... Okay. It's like Westlife or something, isn't it? Um, not. <laughs> um, so, um, David, um, uh, so, so I want to start with, with David. David, you've been reporting the news in this country for like 30 years or so, is that right? You started when you were 10, isn't that right? Yeah. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so like what what I would just love to hear what I'd love us to hear from you first of, first of all before we kind of even maybe push into some of the things that we really want to extrapolate from what's going on today is it would just be great to get a kind of brief cultural commentary if I could put it like that of you of what you see have changed in this nation over the last 30 years if you've been the length and breadth of the country trying to report the news for us I long have we got <laughs> I know <laughs> um, I when I think about that question, immediately sort of get this picture of the bungee run, because it feels like we've run for mm. a long time forward into a new place, but the rope has mm. reached its limit, and in the last few years, we've been pulled back and fallen on our backsides mm. on both parts of this island, and are now desperately trying to find a way to get up and, and move forward. In the space of a generation, we've seen momentous change mm. in, in both Northern Ireland and, and the Republic. Um, but we're now in a place where we're a bit stuck. Um, in Northern Ireland, it came in the form of ceasefires, a historic agreement, um, ancient enemies not just um, sharing power, it's dormant, but praying together mm. uh, in the First Minister's office. And, and in the Republic of Ireland, I think the breakthrough came when they... Um, what I would describe as the flawed pillars of the state, um, religion and the government, um, <laughs> collapsed because of the pandemic of clerical abuse in the church and the pandemic of, of financial corruption in the Irish government. That resulted in them losing their vice-like grip on society that had been there for generations. So people began to think in ways that they'd not thought, had an opportunity to think in for generations. So there was, there was real defining change. Um, in Northern Ireland, in the last few years, of course, we all know power sharing has collapsed. There's real division over Brexit and the DUP having disproportionate influence in Westminster. And we've still got dissident Republican violence and loyalist paramilitary feuding. And then in the Republic of Ireland, I think where we fell back is um, we lost the traditional concepts of marriage and family uh, with... Uh, two-thirds of the electorate voting for same-sex marriage and for abortion. And whatever your view is on those issues, that is seismic change. Mm. So I think my view of it is that in Northern Ireland recently, it feels like the dying embers of, of sectarianism have been rekindled. Mm. And it feels in the South, in the Republic, like, like the, the death of militant conservatism has given birth to a militant liberalism. So it would be really easy to despair, to think, you know, we're beyond hope, but I'm certainly not in that place. I'm actually in a really excited place because I think we're witnessing that pushback because we're right on the threshold of what you've been talking about tonight. Uh, in my mind, it feels a, bit, a little like the general sending his last battalion of soldiers to the front line in a desperate attempt to turn back the tide. Or, or like a, the manager sending his, his defenders to the goalmouth to try and change the outcome of the game in the dying seconds. I feel all of the forces opposed to the change that is coming, and I will say that confidently, um, have been unleashed 
because we're, I, I feel we're right on the threshold of a change that is beyond our expectation. And I don't mean just spiritually. I mean for society in terms of the economy, in terms of the climate, in terms of all of those things. The prosperity uh, for the hostile environment in which we find ourselves. And doesn't that sound familiar? That's what we're supposed to pray for. That's kind of where I feel we are. In a tough place, but a place we've got to go through for the change to become reality. Well, thank you, David. Brilliant. Well, very good, very good. Thank you, David. It's great just to hear that from the from the front line. What you're what you're witnessing, um, Peter. So you're um, if you want to pick up on that, um, you're a, you're the leader of EA here in um, Northern Ireland, and uh, you're also involved, obviously, in leadership in the church in, in Causeway Coast and um, and so you're, you know, God, God's really given you a, a mantle and a grace to speak into into the public square and to help other Christians speak into the public square. And I just wonder, it would be, you can really say whatever you want, but I was thinking it would be great just to pick up maybe on some of what David has has, has said and um, and speak into that a little bit more for us. Begin to provoke us a little bit about how we need to respond to some of the changes that David has uh, indicated there. Uh, yeah, so I, I think the word that I had when you sent some questions in advance and then changed them, you know, but uh, <laughs> the word was identity, which ties in with a lot of what's said, and uh, you were recapping all just earlier, some of the stuff you were saying, even in a, an earlier session. So I think we are, in a, in a sense, in a global identity crisis. Mm. So we th- we're aware of it here, and we think we're in one, but actually we're not alone. Mm. I mean, there's kind of this thing, Northern Ireland hasn't a government for two and whatever years. Um, but the UK doesn't have a government in any meaningful sense. Mm. America has a very disjointed government, mm-hmm. if anyone. Canada's government is really up for grabs and is about to change. Mm. Germany's government, I mean, the EU is in a state of transition and change. So I feel somewhat comforted that we're not alone in not having <laughs> a government. I'm not saying that's a good thing overall, <laughs> um, but actually I think that sense of identity crisis and chaos is, is mm. much larger uh, and, and, and totally with David, and what he was saying, I, though I think the place of chaos, maybe you weren't saying it was going to be short. I feel we're on the cusp of change, but the chaos is going to get a little worse and last a little longer, mm. I still think, um, within that. Uh, you see that with Scottish nationalism, English nationalism on the rise. Uh, you see that throughout the UK mm. and then more globally. So I think that sense of identity is key. Uh, and linked to that for me is, I mean, identity always goes to image. So we're in this image-rich culture, and, and it comes to what it is for us to be an image-bearer. And that's the real positive I want us to lean into. What does it mean to carry the image Mm. of God within us? Um, And we need to wrestle with that. But image always is on the cusp of idolatry. Um, And so for me, the chaos around this identity is to do with idols. And it's not language we like to put on it usually. And there's a little hesitancy uh, around that. But I mean, you know, the Genesis text is saying we are literally the idols. We're the only legitimate idol or image bearer. Those are the same terms. We tend to say we're image bearers and there's these idols over here. Well, it's Mm. the same thing. We're the only authorized, legitimate people to carry the image of God. Um, but what we are seeing is, is the idols on the rise, I think. And, and it's sometimes hard. I mean, it's consumerism. It's, mm. not, it's not, the, it's not the, even the TV in the corner anymore. I mean, it is this thing. You know, if you have this device um, of whatever brand, but if you have this and you've got screen time, I'll even authorize you to take out your phone. I was doing this with a group this week. I'm really scared. So if you go into your settings and turn on your screen time, if you don't already have it, um, you know, it's just disconcerting. I'm not even letting you see mine. Mine is, <laughs> mine is. So, but, but how, so how many hours? If you go in and do your screen time, some of you will know the answer. Who knows that they're spending three hours, four hours a day on their screens? Hmm. Self-confession. Right, the rest of you either haven't looked or aren't telling the truth. <laughs> in our post-truth world, I think that's fake news. So you suddenly go, hold on, that came around in 2007. Uh, Facebook and uh, social media around the same time. So that's suddenly two, three hours a day on average for a light person. Mine is above that, I'll confess. I'm not saying how high above that. <laughs> you just think, well, hold on, that, that's 20 hours a week. Um, so those are the, and then what's coming in? I think we've talked before, but I mean, there's, you know, it doesn't, we don't have to go to extremes of pornography. There's gambling coming in. There's just the stuff. I mean, I can pretend that I chose vans, I, that, you know, advertising doesn't impact me. I have no idea why a pair of van shoes with no socks is apparently cool, but somebody's obviously told me it is, <laughs> why I'm wearing an OI t-shirt. But it's not because it's the best t-shirt. I don't have an iPhone because I'm technical and I realized this was the best possible phone to do the things that I needed. Obviously, somebody along the line told me and persuaded me. And I like to think I'm rising above advertising, but I'm kidding myself. So, of course, I'm being mm. corralled into a certain way. So, and the reason the idols are important is I think that's what leads to injustice. 
So that's my little theological piece. The image piece or identity piece for me is critical there because I think we're in a world where there's never increasing injustice and that is always about idolatry. And we've got people who want to fight the injustice and that is super important. They have no idea that to get to an act of injustice, you have to commit an act of idolatry first. You either have to put, made yourself God or put somebody else. Another thing is the God. And that allows you to undermine the image bearing in somebody else. So to, do, to, do, to commit an act of injustice against David, I have to somehow diminish his image bearing capacity. And I do that by making myself God or something else God so I can undermine him. Mm. And there's loads of people fighting injustice, and that is great, but there's very few, I think, who are seeing beyond that and saying, ah, there's the act of injustice, the consumerism, the greed, or the whatever it was, the pornography, the trafficking, whatever drove that to commit the act of injustice behind it, which is where I think we have the insight. So in a world of chaos, um, and I think it will be increasingly so for a few more years, what's the fundamental question a lot of people are still asking? Who am I? The identity question. That's a great playing field for us to be on because mm. we have something to say on that. Mm. I think if you want to drill further, be identity and relationships and purpose. Those are all key questions. Who am I? Who am I doing life with? And what, what's my purpose? Why mm. am I here? All of which the biblical text has loads to say about. Mm. So if we're gonna if we're gonna do battle in a sense, and I'm cautious of that term, that's a great playing field to be engaging mm. people on in our culture mm. on. And I think we have huge amounts to offer on that. Mm. Brilliant. Thanks, Peter. Um, so picking up on that, the sense of identity, and I suppose as we as we take it, you know, who we are to one another and who we have become who we become to one another, as you kind of referred to relationship there, and as we kind of really kind of hone in on Ireland, you know, Johnny come come to you. Johnny is the leader of um Why I'm here in Ireland, has been for many years, and um and also just you know, speaks all over the world really for reconciliation and um and I suppose, Johnny, I'd love you you to help us speak a little bit into if God's going to do a new thing, we need to find a new way of talking about ourselves that transcends the kind of tribal ways that Peter has been referring to there. And, um, and you know, when you think about, you know, reconciliation and if we're going to move on, there's still obviously a, a woundedness in, in, in the nation. that we, we And you, you, I'd love you to speak into that, but also tell us just what you're doing Actually, this this week, as as a bunch of YWAMers. <laughs> well, um, Dallas Willard said in a, his book, um, The Divine Conspiracy, that eternal life doesn't start when we die; it starts now. Mm. You know, it, we we're to live the eternal life mm. now, and if we're to live eternal life, it means that we've got to live as if we would imagine heaven and a big throne and God on it. You know, and in that place, you don't imagine walls and divisions and idols being there. You imagine. Mm. One new humanity. Mm. We're, there's no male, female in one sense. There's no Jew mm. or Gentile, mm. Protestant, Catholic. We live beyond those kind of walls. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a, you know, sometimes it's people always want to look to the future, and then sometimes people want to live in the past. And neither of those are really, I don't think, are actual kingdom ways of living. There's a, a Maori uh, saying, which is, you've probably heard about it, you walk forward looking backwards, you know. And I think... I remember we do this border walk. We've done it seven years. We're going to do it for 10 years. We walk uh, 200 miles from Ross Trevor to Derry in about 15 days uh, and get really sore feet. And God doesn't miraculously keep our feet, you know, not sore, you know. And I was, that was very profoundly brought home to me. The first year when we walked into Darkley, and many of you know Ian Bothwell, uh, Crossfire Trust, as we walked about 70 miles, we'd been three days walking from Ross Trevor to Newry to Cross McGlen into Darkly, and it's very like Ian to say this kind of thing, but he said, uh, Johnny, are your feet sore? And I said, of course our feet are sore, like we've been walking for four days. Not, most people don't do that kind of thing, you know? <laughs> um, and he said, good, I've been praying that your feet would be sore. Um, and if you know Ian, that's, it's not unlike what he would say, you know? And I thought, why would you say that, you know? Uh, and he said, but he said, because I was praying that your feet would be sore so that you would know some of the pain of the people who live in, this, in these communities, these border communities. And um, I think for me that became a very profound mm. sense of as we walked, it became a pilgrimage. Our feet were sore and we began to feel tangibly pain that existed. And we can look to the future, but if we ignore actual pain, lived pain that mm. exists or that has been there for many years, 
we're not being kingdom people, you mm. know, we're being kind of fakers, you know. Mm. Um, and, you know, I inherited, uh, Youth with the Mission inherited the old Christian Renewal Center. Harry Smith's here. And mm. one of the, we didn't only inherit a big old building on Carlingford Lock on the Irish border. We, in many ways, I think we inherited a legacy of Cecil Kerr. We inherited uh, some prophetic words that they had. And one of the words that I think Harry had or some of his community was that in Ireland, there is a wound. Um, and the border is like a, a, a wound that is infected and needs to be cleaned. And if it's then when it's cleaned, it needs to be sewn together. Uh, and I don't think our border walk really does anything. It's really bad when you lead a project and you say, I don't think our thing does anything. <laughs> In the sense that I don't think we're magically stitching the border, you know? We're, if anything, we're prophetically enacting what we're all meant to be living every day, which is that we are to be cleaning the wounds of people mm. And, and sewing them together um, and showing them a kingdom life that is not Protestant or British or Catholic or Irish, but is, is uniquely loving of all uh, and lives without borders. Mm. And, and we become, and then we become, uh, we pray for the peace of Babylon, as, as Jeremiah says. You know, we don't just kind of live in this place of exile and go, oh, I wish we were in Jerusalem. No, God said to, to mm. Jeremiah, pray for the peace of Babylon, you know. Build a house there, plant a garden, you know, like do well there, pray for the peace of the city. And I think if we just want to look ahead to the future without kind of trying to bring the kingdom here now, then we're, we kind of live as, as kind of dreamers that aren't really, mm. our feet aren't on the ground, you know? Mm. Um, so those would be, I don't even know if that made sense. Great. And so just at the moment, you're on the, on the, on the border work, aren't you? So yeah. where, 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 where so have you done? They just walked into cash today. Um, We've gone, you know, uh, from Katy to Monaghan, Five Mile Town, Lissenski, Derry Lynn, all these places. You, if you're from Bel where I grew up in Belfast, you don't often go to. Um, Cash tomorrow, or next tomorrow's day off, then they go to Castle Derg, Straban, and then on Tuesday we walk into Derry, London Derry, uh, and we, um, <laughs> and then we, uh, we're going to do a, a, a time of worship in front of the Guild Hall at about 7 o'clock, so you're all welcome to join us. We'll expect you all there. <laughs> um, and um, Alan couldn't come to our last event because the you know Champions League final was on. <laughs> Apparently, he cared cared a bit more about. <laughs> See, talk about idols, you know. Like, <laughs> no, no, no. But uh, but you know that's what we're doing. Take a big cross, you know. I thought we're going to just do this walk for ten years, but we're not going to take a cross because that's just a bit ostentatious. And then. I've got this very extroverted friend from Ballymun, Dublin, who runs, helps run street pastors. And he came, he goes, Johnny, I've got a cross for you. And I go, great, okay, we're going to take a cross, you know. And he, he didn't know how to put wheels, and he prayed, how do I get wheels? And he saw his wheelie bin had a number, he rang the number, and he said, look, I need wheels. And they go, come, and he got wheelie bin wheels for the cross, you know. <laughs> and that lasted about three years, carrying a cross with wheelie bin wheels all over, all over the country. And... Um, and, and we get people to write on it, you know. I mean, uh, profound moments of meeting former Republican paramilitaries who go, I just thought Jesus walked by, what was that? And then you start to talk to them, meet a couple in a tiny wee border village whose nephew just committed suicide, and you end up holding hands with them. And they, they ask, could they write their name on, the, mm. on the, the name of their nephew on the cross, you know, mm. and they write the name. And then you hold hands and you, and, you, and you say the Our Father with them in the middle of a street, you know. And that, that becomes kind of... Mm. A, a prophetic symbol of what we're all meant to live in our places of work every day mm. of the week, you mm. know. Amazing. Well done, Jonah. Mm. Beautiful. Thanks, Johnny. So just, just kind of f f picking up again then, David, posture is obviously a really important concept in how we engage the kind of tone that we use. It feels like there's a way that we need to learn to speak as a body of Christ that's maybe different than what we've spoken before at times. So, um, and so I, I just love you to speak into how how you see a way that we need to dialogue in less partisan kind of binary ways as we go forward as followers of Jesus, obviously. Um, oh. To simplify it, I think, to start with, it can never, ever be a posture of defense. The, the posture of embattlement mm. um we've, we've got to shake off and 
this is very simple example of it, but we've got to shake off the kind of social media, Facebook mentality of posting to keep Christ in Christmas, uh, posting to defend our right to buy mm. an egg that's got the word Easter on it. Mm. Any sense of persecution that we have here pales into insignificance mm. alongside what's happening globally. And actually, when you look at places like Africa and Asia where there is real persecution, very often, not always, but very often, those are the places where the church is thriving. Mm. Anyway, so we've got to lose this idea that there is not an inevitability about this. Uh, will there be a falling away? Yes. Will the false prophets arise? Yes. Will many hearts grow cold? Absolutely. Jesus said that, Matthew 24, mm. but read the next verse but the kingdom of the gospel will still be preached throughout the world to all nations. So who, who's doing this preaching? Mm. Who are these missionaries? Who are these witnesses? It's really obvious, obvious to me there's going to be a nucleus, a core of what you talked about earlier, white hot, mm. on fire, sold out for Jesus' believers. Mm. So for me, to get to the place where I'm in that nucleus, which is where we all want to be, the posture can't be obsessively always turned against the enemy. Important though that is, the posture has to be turned towards the Father. Mm. Because that's the place where we're going to learn to love mm. as he loves. Mm. Um, Tim, Tim Keller says in this post-Christendom generation, we still haven't figured out really where we are. We haven't got our heads around the fact that we are no longer loved by everyone, that we are seen as the bad guys. Mm. We're outside the circle trying mm. to fight our way in and therefore we haven't figured out and developed the right counter-narratives. Well, far, far be it from me um, to disagree with the legendary Tim Keller, but I think we have some of the, the counter-narratives. Because if the cultural narrative is pride, I'm right, you're wrong, it's, it's my way or no way, then the counter-narrative has got to be humility. Mm the Philippians 2 mindset. Mm. And I think the church right across Ireland, and I will be blunt and say, especially in Northern Ireland, mm -hmm. has lots of repenting to do for the way we've behaved and making people think you can only make your way to Jesus through our door, through the way we do it. Salvation doesn't belong to us. Mm. 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 Salvation... We sang about it a moment ago. Salvation belongs to our God. It is he who sits on the throne. So it, it's about humility. And, and if, the, if the cultural narrative is, is one of um, populism and polarization, we see it with Trump on one side of the Atlantic, we see it with Brexit on this side of the Atlantic, then the counter narrative has got to be coexistence. There are no walls being built in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Mm. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. While we were still sinners, he died for us. So the, 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 the counter-narrative is already there, I think, for mm, us. Mm. And, and of one more that came to mind when I was out walking earlier today. Um, if the cultural narrative is entrenchment, you know, get into the bunker and always look for, you know, defend your position. It's always got to be the black and white answer. Then the counter-narrative has got to be risking stepping into um, the unknown, mm. stepping into no man's land in order to reach people there. You know, the only people who ever sought to entrench Jesus were the Pharisees. What are we going to do with this woman who's pouring this expensive perfume out? What are we going to do mm. with this woman caught in, in adultery? What are we mm. going to do with this woman who's had five and a half husbands? You know, <laughs> they always wanted a black and white answer, and Jesus never gave them one. Mm. He always found a more gracious place in, in between. And the reason for that is because grace is not compromise. He showed grace and he spoke grace. And so I think for us, that's the posture we've got to, mm -hmm. to adapt. Turned towards the Father, not obsessively just turned against the enemy. Though that's important, I'm not dismissing that. Mm. Um, and it's about loving each other. That's what the world's got to see. It's about enjoying Jesus. Mm. Yeah. And it's about not just speaking, but living into that tide mm. in a way that is winsome and allows people to, to see Jesus. I think those are the ways that we will um, Brilliant. see the change. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Mm. Dave's uh, frantically trying to re remember how to play Salvation Belongs to Our God now. <laughs> <laughs> three chords, it's easy enough. 
So, um, P- Peter, just you just follow on from David there, pretty much just. And, and you're, you're, so somebody is speaking on behalf of the church. What is your longing for how we go forward as a church in Ireland? I know you're probably specifically speaking in the north, but just how, how what's your longing? What's your dream in a sense for how we move forward? Uh, yeah, well, I just, I agree with David. That's really it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so again, the word, I mean, I was just praying into this and, and listening during the week, and, and in, inheritance was the word that uh, uh-huh. just came. And a couple of kind of strands to that that really, I think, tie in. Um, first is around unity uh, and the need for that, for us to show unity. Um, EA, Evangelical Alliance, is a unity organization that's been on the go 170 years, and John 17 is our core text, you know, that through our unity, people may see the Father. Mm. But I also want to, I mean, I think it's really important to honor what's going on in this place. Um, so for those of you who come here, to all of you, that you probably recognize it and know it, or maybe it's so inherent you don't, but what your leaders and what you as a community carry is just amazing, and it's unusual. It's becoming more usual, and I'm excited about that, but I really want to say, like to Phil, to Al, to Dave, and, and what this community carries here, it's phenomenal. Who you're gathering, who you're bringing together, the open-handedness and the generosity is really striking. And, and we, the rest of us, love that and are so thankful to you for who you gather together. And um, you know, we've talked about that kind of circuit board analogy in various ways because I think that the dots are being connected, the, the grid is being wired up so that as and when things happen, yeah. relationally, it, it's there to move. Um, and I'm excited about that. I think the posture thing, I didn't actually read your questions where the word posture was when I was reading Al's email. So I'd written that down and then looked back today and went, all right, so I felt God was in that, the posture. Because I think we are at all, the culture thinks the church still has too much grip. Mm. And we in the church often think we're losing our grip. And <laughs> there's these two hilariously at odds narratives going, mm. odd, going on. And that's it's quite difficult and dangerous potentially. And so mm. the posture shift is massive. And the things for me in that were around grace, again, that graciousness. So we actually live in a culture that's quite fundamentalist in how it goes about some things mm. and doesn't know what to do with grace. Or forgiveness doesn't have a space for that. Mm. So I don't think it knows. I mean, you could get into stories in the news literally these last couple of days. And at what point has, can we move on or let or forgive somebody or, or extend grace to somebody? Our culture is mm. pretty hard line. And if you cross it, I'm not sure how you get back. Mm. So we should be leading on that and showing that graciousness. Mm. And then we do have to have a, a, a kind of quiet confidence. I think confidence is the right word. So people ask me to speak on that persecution narrative stuff all the time. And I'm like, man, we're so not persecuted. And also, and also, do you know the story? Mm. <laughs> we didn't lose. We're not losing. Mm. I mean, there's some stuff going on. But, I mean, Jesus came on, on the cross and mm. the powers and victory and Christ is victorious in that. And what we're living into is that eternal life that has already begun. Mm. Like, we're living into that space. But we seem to live on the other end of the defensiveness all the time, which is bizarre to me. Um, so I think in that, so there's, um, yeah, the unity, the posture. The intergenerational, I think, is huge. Another point. So even as we were talking about technology and stuff earlier, there's, there's ways in which I'm thinking, how do I shape the identity of my daughters in this culture? And I, like, I think loads of us are wrestling probably with that. Mm. This is the first generation to, to be raised entirely with that technology and iPad kind of stuff. We have no idea the experiment we're running on mass. Mm. Look at how much it's changed us in the 10 years as adults. So what's it doing to them? Mm. And how am I going to shape the identity and have an intergenerational interaction there? How are we going to do that differently? So I'm excited about some stuff that's coming and how we, as again, as a church, are probably one of the most intergenerational bodies in any town, community that we're in. There are very few other spaces where you get this socioeconomic and also age spectrum. You just don't get a space where you sit beside a 65-year-old and a 12-year-old and a three-month-old crawling around. You're going, what? Or picking them up and loving them. Um, it's so good, but it's such an exciting and different environment. So I think there's a real thing about that because we're going into generational spectrums in our society. Mm. We don't know how to transcend those often. And we have that. Look at, look at the mix in this room. This is not a normal gathering. In that way. So I'm excited about that. Uh, and then revival. Revival. Hmm? No, definitely not. And then, so there's nothing normal about this room. Is that what we're saying? Um, and the revival, like, is the word you had. So I just, again, that sense of presence and prayer and contending. So, I mean, I love prayer. I have to learn to say it in Lurgan. Um, <laughs> You're getting so there, once, Gabe. I, you Gabe. Know, You're getting there. You, you know the story. I once spoke in a church in Moira, and I said prayer, and then I said it the Ali Emerson way. And, of course, there were like three Emersons in the room. Straight up afterwards, how dare you slack off the Emerson, the Emerson way of saying prayer, which is a, a whole, whole word on its own. Um, but that, 
Some of you probably listen to people like John Tyson, but what strikes me, I think Tyson's one of the best preachers in the world, but what strikes me is his contending. You listen in behind the stories, and he is just hours and hours and hours praying for New York City. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. Gosh, what am I, what am I doing? I'm not contending for my family the way he is. I'm like, whoa. So that's really checked me about where am I seeking the presence? Where am I leaning in? Where am I contending for that? Because all very well to say prayer is at the, at the heart of this. And you guys, again, are leading in this. Um, but it's like it's a serious contending that I don't think mm. we're doing. Sorry, I have one other point, and then I'll shut up. But it's, it's the, the prayer, that the kind of missional edge to that, to lead the revival. But supernatural. Like, we've talked about that supernatural. And I'm seeing a real shift in that. That's what excites me across the church. There's a real openness to the supernatural. You see, in a, in a secular culture like we are, we're not going to argue people in. We're not going to reason people in. We, we probably never did, um, you know. C.S. Lewis even says, I hate the encounter, and then he sort of backfilled the story and realized all the bits were coming together. And that's probably the same for most. So in these moments, we have these supernatural encounters. Um, and I think, you know, Daniel is the paradigm for that for me. It's the, it's the engagement with culture. He knew the language. He knew how to speak to them, but he knew supernatural. He could interpret dreams and visions. And so we've got one group who can do cultural analysis, but they don't know what to do with that. And we've got another group here, maybe a bit wacky on the supernatural. And the real power comes when we can bring that stuff mm. together and go, hey, Let's read culture and know the language, but supernaturally speak and interpret dreams and visions. Mm. Because we live in a secular age, and the secular age is a kind of misunderstood concept. But what, I think Charles Taylor's the best on this, but I haven't read his 900-page book, but I've read a summary of 120 pages. <laughs> but anyway, he's looked at this concept of, of what it is to live in this age. And 500 years ago, it was unthinkable to not believe in God. It's now almost unthinkable to believe in God. And he talks about some of the shifts in that. But here's what he said is, this is, secularism is not about unbelief, it's about the contestability of belief. Now that cuts both ways, and I think this is really important. It means that um, the doubters are tempted to believe. And so there's an English uh, author, Julian Barnes, and he says this, um, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Hmm. I just think that's a great quote for so many of my friends and what's going on in this world. I don't hmm. believe in God, but I miss him. All these values conversations, ethics, moral mm. conversations, the hope that there's something more, those who are going into the occult, and in different ways, they're looking for something more. They're looking for something that transcends. This flat story is pretty rubbish, and people realize at death, at birth, at marriage, they want something more. Um, sorry, nearly there. And then, so, but at the same time, so that's exciting, um, the believers are tempted to doubt. That's the flip side. Everything's contestable. The idea of becoming a Christian just staying there and not really thinking about it for the next 30, 40 years just doesn't exist anymore. And so on the flip side, so the doubters are tempted to believe. So we're going to have more moments where we're going to have conversations with our neighbors and they're going to have moments when they're open and the supernatural and the invasion of the Holy Spirit in their lives. But believers are going to be tempted to doubt because it's hard to hold faith in this world. So we're going to have to do a better job of discipleship. We are going to see people drift in and out more than we did. The traditional model was you got saved, you stayed in 40 years and went to heaven when you died. That's not the way, there's drifting, and that's going to not a lot more discipleship. And that, that's hard work. But if we, if it's to tie the two things together, for me, the two words I felt God gave the identity and inheritance is, if we understand our identity, if we understand we're son and a daughter of the king, then what are we joint heirs with Christ? Mm. And that's the inheritance. And this is what this land has, as you've touched upon. Uh, we have an inheritance around prayer, around mission, and around revival. And so we want to claim the inheritance as sons and daughters of the king because we know our identity. We want to release people into their identity and we want to help them claim their inheritance that, that we have in this land. That, mm -hmm. that's, that's our inheritance. And so we want to absolutely claim it in this moment. But the first, we've got to release people into their identity as sons and daughters of the king to introduce them to Jesus, to have them fresh encounter, to see the Holy Spirit come upon them, the supernatural in that moment. And I will stop. Well done. Mm -hmm. Johnny, um, just to finish us off, what else would you like to say? <laughs> you obviously uh, took a long time to formulate that question. With all, um, with all, with all, like due respect, though, um, <laughs> what, I, what I do want to say is, um, uh, it's, it's funny, but it's also kind of honoring because I do I do really love your heart Johnny and we really honor your heart and honor you know the, the heart for reconciliation the feeling that you feel for what the Lord wants to do and what he needs to do in people's hearts and so basically I'm saying that because just like you to speak a little bit more out of that heart yeah yeah thanks Alan um yeah I mean I think 
I read something the other day, I might have tweeted it, um, that uh, don't tell people what they, what they need, tell them who they are. Um, and, and the point being, you know, if I was just to say, look, guys, this is what your church needs to look like, that's kind of cool. You'll look at it and go, oh, maybe I can become like that. Um, but if I was to say, you're beautiful, uh, God loves you, um, there's deepness in you. If I was mm. to say, as, as Peter did about your church here and, and Chris and Dave and the guys, Phil, there's this deep humility when you walk in. I, I felt just real humility. And suddenly when you get told who you are, you can live into that identity, mm. you know? And I think, so I think, you know, there's, I love hearing, you know, futurists and Christian futurists, not like weird, you know, guys, you know, but people look at tra- <laughs> patterns and trends and where are we going. I love the, that kind of stuff. And I love, yeah, prophets and stuff. But there is something actually deeply, <laughs> <laughs> prophets, prophets and stuff, you know. But there is something deeply prophetic. Actually, maybe the most deep kind of prophetic is when you look at someone and you say, you're loved, you know, mm. you're gold, mm. you know. And, and I think um, there's something about for us, if, if we want to look to be the church, the kingdom people for the future, it's, it's knowing that we're loved. And when you know that you're loved, you think you're the king of the world, but not in a kind of like a vulnerable, defensive way, as we were talking about. Um, when I tell my kids I love them, they doesn't matter. Nothing else matters to them. Their dad loves them. And, and I think, uh, for me, I think one of the key words, is, particularly as we walk through the border, is that word about humility. You know, when I was about 17, I was walking home from CFC in Strandtown. I think I'd heard a great talk on um, Philippians 2, and I thought I need to go home and learn the first 10 verses of Philippians 2. And, and because I felt like God was saying, Johnny, these are, these, you need to learn this because you're a proud young, proud young man, you know. Um, and I went home, and, and yeah, and I just started to learn those verses. And I think if there's anything about posture that, that we need to carry is that sense of humility, which is not being known for who you truly are, you know, not, not, a, not a kind of uh, fake, I'm, I'm debasing myself, I'm nothing. We're known for who you are. And, and, and Philippians 2 just says, look, if you have any comfort being, from being united with Christ, if any, um, uh, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness, Tenderness and compassion make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing and took on the very nature of a servant and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I think those verses, Philippians 2, speak about a beautiful humility. Be known for who you truly are. Be known as a, I'm a child of God, you know. And I think as churches, if we just have this beautiful, gracious humility of not defensiveness and protecting and, and wanting to grab onto something, but just this beautiful vulnerability of going, I'm just a child of God. And we walk through life with that. I think we do become magnetic and contagious and people want that. They want reality, you know. Mm. And, and I think humility is what we've got to strive for, you know. Oh, man. So um, let's give them a round of applause. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Great. Thank you. David, Peter, and Johnny. There's, there's, there's loads in there. I think this is recorded too, so you'll be able to listen to it and re-listen to it. There's loads in there, but there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's an essence that we could kind of sum up as well, isn't there, quite simply, and that's like God wants to think us to respond in the opposite spirit of, of, what, of what's going on all around us, which is in, a, in an age of... of of, of pride and and division, 
God wants us to respond in a spirit of worship and humility. Yeah. And so as we as we come to ask the Lord tonight to, 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 to fill us and and you know Johnny just Johnny just said about them it may be the most prophetic thing that we can do is kind of to speak the love of of God and, and, and it was it's quite cool because I know that you know, Christine in, in, in leading the prophetic session today, you know, was was very much coming from that mindset and that heart that that we we love people in that, that you know the we 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 speak the word of the Lord out of a, a deep heart place of of love, so we're not clanging symbols, yeah. And uh, and so we want to. I just think we should lean into that tonight a little bit, yeah, to start with, and let's see where it goes after that. But I think we should respond in a spirit of humility. And in a spirit of worship, and um, and then we maybe I know that Christine and, and and maybe some others have some words that will be re-released that we feel maybe God will steer us into. But could we stand at our feet tonight? Um, stand to your feet for a moment, but then. I know this. Um, I know this isn't necessarily easy for people sit, sitting in rows or whatever, you know, but I would love us to posture yourself a little bit different. There is some rooms in the aisles and there is some room at the front here. And um, I just I just feel if, if like, we should, if you can, and there's no pressure to do this, but if you can and are able, maybe we should kneel tonight. can come into this space and this just let's just be a, a people who are responding to, to God and, and what he's doing uh, there's, there's loads of room if you want to come on up in here you can prophetic words um, but the thing I wanted to share right up front is that um, since I've landed in this country yesterday I keep seeing the same picture and I see a, a door that's closed and there's a um, light bright bright light that's shining underneath it and it's thick and it's um, and it's glory like it's the kind of light that has substance that, that I want to reach out and touch it you know and I, I know um, that that's what's coming I know that that door is going to open. But I also see this line of people that are like shoulder to shoulder, their arms are around each other like this. There's just this a line of people and they're walking towards that door. And then I see opposition hit them and I hear the Lord say, go low! And they drop to their faces in humility. And then the, the, the pressure, the, the attack, the, the opposition just goes right past him and they stand up and they continue to march forward and then another wave of opposition comes toward him and the Lord yells go low and they drop to their faces and they worship and they go in humility and they repent and the Lord cleanses them of their own I mean their own purity their own the, the, their own internal workings he, he's cleansing them and he's strengthening them and there's this boldness and there's this humility and there's the repentance and then there's this determination to go forward because that that glory is a it's it's at the bottom of the door and we're gonna have to go low to see it but it's it's there so there's a weight on the repentance and if, if it's okay and like us I don't even want to tell you what to repent for but I I, I feel like there's some repentance that Alan or somebody mentioned specifically for Northern Ireland. And I don't know how you'd want to lead that, but I would love to start with some. <laughs> I don't even know what to repent for. I just, I, I, I feel like there's some repentance specifically for Northern Ireland because the Lord's birthing something here. He's starting a movement that we're like right in the middle of the birth of this movement that he's starting. Bible always starts with prayer 
that usually starts with repentance. So can we repent for Northern Ireland? Whatever is on your heart to repent for history, for whatever hearts you have, we'll stand with you and repent on your behalf. We've got enough repenting to do for our country to last for months. But Father, will you lead us in our hearts? We want to worship you, Lord. But as we are all on our knees tonight, can we, Holy Spirit, will you move on us to all speak out repentance in whatever way that needs to look. I'm not going to tell you how or what, but on behalf of your country, let's clear the air. Let's just stay in this moment to feel like the Lord just wants to release in the room a spirit of supplication. That's what the Lord is saying through Christine tonight, I think. Go low. Release a wave of supplication and repentance and humility. Turning to the Lord. Father, we, we repent of our pride, of our religious arrogance, of our belief that we are the exclusive holders of truth. God, we, we repent of our nationalistic pride and arrogance, and particularly those of us in Northern Ireland who have felt in some way that we are the last bastion of hope for the Christian world. God, we repent. Jesus, will you come? You come and disarm us with your love. We lay down the weapons of our misinformed warfare. We lay down the things that we've been fighting for that even though we have fought in, in your name, but it hasn't been you. It's been something else. Lord, will you show us where we have given up our love, given our hearts to things, God, that, that aren't, aren't you, where we've come in your name, but we haven't been 
representing you, where we've spoken as if to speak on your behalf, but we haven't been actually speaking for you, Lord. We repent of that. We say that we're sorry. Lord, will you come and, and disarm our hearts with your love? somebody why don't we just take a moment just to, to pray those prayers out just confess some of those things just on, on behalf of nation can we just do that just start to whisper those prayers to one another sometimes when we confess with your mouth yeah and let's, let's confess with our mouth yeah that's on behalf of the nation this is it's a, it's a very biblical thing by the way identificational repentance you know we identify with the sins of the, of the, the land and we just we take responsibility as the people of god yeah stand in the gap yeah. So it's just, let's just let's do this in these moments, okay? Let's just maybe wherever you're sitting, just start praying out. Let's just pray out some prayers. Let's fill the place with the supplication, the grace of supplication that precedes any kind of move of the Spirit. Let's just fill it with the room. It's, it's not a shame thing, right? It's, it's not a shame thing at all. It's just a, an invitation into a change of heart and a change of mind. And as we long for that for ourselves, let's long for that in the nation. So it's just... Let's just do that together. Come on, let's just fill the place of prayer.